Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. As the Delta variant surges, New York Governor Kathy Hochul is taking new steps to counter the spread of COVID-19. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas reports. Hochul announced the designation of COVID-19 as an airborne infectious disease under New York State's HERO Act. On May 5th, then-Governor Andrew Cuomo signed the New York Health and Essential Rights Act, or New York HERO Act. It mandates extensive new workplace health and safety protections in response to the pandemic. Hochul says designating COVID-19 a highly contagious communicable disease that presents a serious risk of harm to the public will give the HERO Act teeth. They developed the new standards, but they'd only take effect when the Commission of Health triggers it. I've talked to the Commission of Health. I say, let's get it done. Uh, back when this was signed, we all had this vision that the pandemic would be behind us. That didn't happen. Under the law, all employers are required to adopt a workplace safety plan and implement it for all airborne infectious diseases designated by the State Department of Health. Employers can adopt a model safety plan as crafted by the New York State Department of Labor or develop their own safety plan in compliance with HERO Act standards. Ken Pokalski, vice president of the Business Council of New York State, says employers went through this during the pandemic under the so-called New York Forward Protocols. The model plan uh, that employers were able to adopt is really is basic uh, protections wear masks whenever possible in the workplace. Uh, if masking is not possible, maintain social distancing of employees. Uh, you know, have basic, uh, you know, cleaning, hand sanitizing stations. The things that employers were used to doing, employees, frankly, were used to doing as well uh, during the height of the pandemic last year. That's what's required uh, uh, under the under the HERO Act in this in this current step. The law says that the, the state through departments of labor and, and health can implement additional, more rigorous requirements. But those are the basic ones that are in place right now. Todd Shimkus is president of the Saratoga County Chamber of Commerce. I know every business was required when they reopened to have um, a safety plan you know, they, or they signed on to the state's, um, you know, the state had, had protocols that you could use as your plan and you had to have a copy of it. So as long as that is, you know, sufficient, then uh, it won't be a big deal. If that's not sufficient, then we get big problems. Pokalski says employers should find the plan's basic requirements to be fairly doable. There's somewhere in the neighborhood of 450 to 500,000 employers in the state and of all, you know, varying sizes and varying sophistication. So I think the, the challenge number one in this or almost any other, you know, labor law uh, mandate is is in, informing all those employers as to what their obligations are. And I'm sure there's there's some gaps. People, you know, weren't aware of the, 
the plan mandate and, and subsequently aren't aware of their current obligations. Uh, we've done a lot of that outreach. I know other business groups as well have as well. Again, Hochul. This pandemic, particularly the Delta variant, is continuing to rage. It's creating unsafe conditions in some workplaces. And if we want to get people back to work and get our kids back in schools, we need to have standards that not just are on law, but are actually enforced. And that's the action I'm going to take here today by signing this directive, the Commissioner of Health, to make sure that the New York Hero Act, which has been talked about for a long time, but we're finally going to make it become a reality right now. Officials say the law protects employees from retaliation should they make a complaint about an employer's failure to comply with the adopted plan. Pokolsky notes there is also a provision setting up workplace safety committees, which takes effect in November. Under the workplace safety plans, it's necessary that they can direct more more rigid, more more detailed requirements. Uh, we haven't seen those yet, but we're we're you know talking to the administration, or keeping a close eye on on what Department of Health and Department of Labor may be doing, and certainly doing a lot of uh, work to inform our members uh, as to what their obligations are. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. President Biden on Tuesday, Alan warned of a code red moment on climate change as he toured to northeastern states ravaged by the remnants of Hurricane Ida. While his administration prepared to ask Congress for billions in federal aid to respond to last week's storm and other natural disasters, Biden, of course, in New York and New Jersey, in his second Ida-related visit in less than a week, used his trip to press for robust action to combat climate change and focus attention on his expansive domestic infrastructure agenda in Congress. From the Washington Post, predicting that natural disasters will continue to occur with more frequency and ferocity. Biden said the, quote, nation and the world are in peril and implored passage of his Build Back Better plan, which will be drafted on Capitol Hill this month and is expected to include funding to deal with the warming planet. We've been talking about this daily, and the president recognizes it as a plan. The question is, will that plan go forward? And as he said, can we stop climate change from growing and continuing? And if you're Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, the question is, is it going to cost too much? Well, our children, as I often said, their children and their children's children are all looking at this now and are really facing it. We know what's happening. The world is really in trouble. And it is not as if we don't understand what's happening. We do, but we are unwilling to do what needs to be done. And it comes down to that. You're right, David. We've been talking about this for a long time, and now it's here. We're seeing it. The fires in the West and the storms that we have experienced here in the East. So what do we do? Either we follow a prescription and do everything we can that the president has laid out, or we go back to the Trump days. In the papers this morning, signals, which I've always known, that Trump is going to run again. And as the president does what's right and pays the price for that, David, and his numbers go down, the potential terror of another Trump round 
is very much on us. And we're going to see what happens in the by-elections, 22. But if the House of Representatives and the Senate goes Republican, the writing is on the wall about the crisis this country faces. So either we do something about the climate and either we do something about preparing ourselves and our kids and their kids for what's coming, or we look the other way and it gets worse and worse and worse. Well, Alan, the lieutenant governor, new lieutenant governor, Brian Benjamin, sworn in this week. The governor, Kathy Hochul, of course, was the lieutenant governor and came in after the resignation of former now New York governor Andrew Cuomo. The question raised was how important is the lieutenant governor position? And Kathy Hochul, the new governor, addressed that she will work in partnership with her lieutenant governor, but it's always been seen as a ceremonial leadership post. What do you think? As a vice president of the United States once said, the number two office has the power of warm spit. That's right. And a governor who is obviously politically attuned to her own advancement will continue to do that. She would be smart. Now, look, Lieutenant Governor Benjamin, a bright man, a man with a very impressive academic background, is in a position to help. And he happens to be of color. He's black. And if there is one thing that could absolutely kill the prospects of being elected again for Kathy Hochul, it is the fact that her opponent may well be Letitia James, who is, of course, black and will be a New York favorite because she's done a terrific job as attorney general. And so you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that in terms of the ethnic politics game that is played in politics, Kathy Hochul did the right thing. She named a black lieutenant governor. But if the top office is between Letitia James and Kathy Hochul, I don't see how Hochul is going to win. She's got a tough road here. She's from upstate. Top leaders in this state have always come from the New York City area. And I just see if Letitia James gets into it, and I'm sure she's thinking hard about it, it's going to be a very close race, I suspect. Remember that Hochul has the advantage of being the incumbent, which is a lot in this state and in this country. On the other hand, there are certain political realities that you got to face. Finally, Alan, it's 20 years since the terror attacks on the World Trade Center, 9-11. A lot of remembrance going on this week as people look back. The thing that impacted me the most was as you look at the polarization and people unable to even speak about politics without screaming, turning away from each other, that after those attacks, it was amazing to see this country come together, to see folks from the South making their way up to New York to help out, to be part of making America whole again, healing. And boy, could we use some of that without the terror attack now. You are so right. You know, I won't forget it. I'll never forget it. And I think it's one of those events that people will always mark time with. Uh, we were in Italy, and people were very, very upset. And all around the world, people really did relate to what was happening as those buildings came down. And everybody had somebody that they knew or knew of in those buildings. And it became an extremely personal time. And we still see it today as so many people are thinking about what happened as those buildings came down. You know, if you watch anything on television, any drama, anything, they always show those buildings when they were up there or quite frequently if it's an older film or an older time. And that really did change the way in which we thought about terror. And let's remember 
That wasn't the first time they tried to take down those buildings. We knew it before, as somebody went into the garage, and that blew up, and Mario Cuomo was governor at that time. So let's say we are living in a time when the bad guys will always try to do harm to America. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartong. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government, politics. I'm David Gustino. Over objections both loud and soft, the operator of a company involved in the October 2018 limousine crash that killed 20 in Schoharie will avoid jail time. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard has more. The plea hearing for prestige limousine operator Naman Hussein was held inside the high school gymnasium of the Schoharie Central School District, the same place where almost three years ago hundreds of mourners gathered for a memorial service for the 20 people who lost their lives on October 6, 2018. That day, a modified 2001 Ford Excursion stretch limousine lost its brakes as it traveled down a steep hill in Schoharie into the parking lot of the Apple Barrel Country Store, striking a parked vehicle before coming to rest in a ravine. All 17 passengers, the driver, and two bystanders were killed. On Thursday, Hussein pleaded guilty to 20 counts of criminally negligent homicide for his role in the crash. During the hearing, family members and friends of the victims spoke softly and shouted through tears as they delivered victim impact statements. Hussein, eyes down, sniffled as those who lost their loved ones fumed. One mother said though she would never wish Hussein dead, she wished the 31-year-old would live a life of pure hell. As part of a plea agreement, Hussein will avoid jail time with five years of probation, including two years of interim probation that requires 1,000 hours of community service. Hussein was also ordered to provide restitution and is prohibited from working in the transportation sector. We're all mad. We're all so mad. Mary Ashton and her husband Kyle lost their son, Michael Christopher Ukai, a Marine veteran who was also celebrating his 34th birthday on the day of the crash when several friends were on their way to Omegang Brewery in Cooperstown in the limo. Ashton said due to illness, she had not seen her son alive since Christmas 2012. In the wake of the crash, she described experiencing extreme PTSD and near-constant anger. Her husband Kyle, who said his youngest son is afraid to drive due to the accident, leaned into the microphone during his testimony to emphasize the word failure. The failure of vehicle inspectors who allowed the limo to remain on the road. The failure of waiting three days to hear of his son's death. And the failure of today. He joined his wife in the parking lot following the hearing. A lot of failure on the part of the state and a lot of other people we feel. Schoharie County District Attorney Susan Mallory, who reached the plea deal with Hussein's attorneys, only offered brief comments to reporters waiting outside. The Republican, running for re-election unopposed, said she could not speak about the case. But I thank you for coming here, and I hope uh, that justice was served. It was not apparent the families felt that way on Thursday. 
Cynthia Lefebvre, one of the attorneys working on a civil case, acknowledged the family's frustration, but she said Wednesday they need to go forward. I, I hope that ultimately we will find justice in the civil case and that the true story of everything that happened will be told in that case. Lefebvre and her fellow attorneys have filed suit against Prestige Limousine, Naman Hussein, and Hussein's father and company owner, Shahed Hussein, who is believed to be hiding out of country. Suits have also been filed against the state of New York and Mavis Discount Tire in Saratoga Springs, which was approached by Hussein to perform repairs on the limousine's brakes. Hussein's defense attorney, Joe Takapina, said it was the substantial and intervening acts by others, including Mavis, that led to the crash. Remember what he did was going to, to Mavis in May and again in September and, and asked for the brakes to be checked and fixed. And he was told that they were, he paid for that service, and, and that service was never, was never done. The limousine was found by National Transportation Safety Board investigators to have poorly maintained and largely, if not entirely, non-operational rear brakes, placing the burden on the vehicle's front brakes. In a report issued in November 2020, the NTSB criticized Prestige Limousine for operating the vehicle, Mavis Discount Tire for giving the modified vehicle an inspection sticker, despite not having the authority to do so, and New York State for not taking the vehicle off the road following prior violations. At the time, the State Departments of Transportation and Motor Vehicles said they exercised their full authority under state law to order the limo off the road several times, claiming Prestige repeatedly violated state law. Asked about the heartbreaking testimony of the families Thursday, Takopina said his client intends to respond at sentencing. Before adjourning the hearing, Judge George Bartlett III made a request of Hussein on behalf of the families, quote, please don't forget these people, end quote. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. The Adirondack Council has released an annual State of the Park report since 1986. The just-released 2021 edition, titled A Wilderness of Refuge, offers mixed grades for state policymakers' actions regarding the Adirondacks, but not everyone agrees with the marks the council has published this year. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley with more. The annual report presents thumbs up and thumbs down on a range of actions and policy issues addressed by state, local, and federal leaders. In the prologue, Executive Director Willie Janeway writes that over the past year, the park has been stressed and tested, but stakeholders are hopeful for its future. Council spokesman John Sheehan says the assessment offers an overall hopeful tone. A number of the things we were trying to get state government to recognize and to begin to act upon, we saw some action on in the past 12 months. And certainly, uh, we were happy in general um, with the way the courts uh, treated the park. There was one exception of, the, of a local court, but uh, that was on an issue we think can be resolved later on. Um, I think also that we saw some positive progress on the federal level that we have not seen in many years. And uh, I think that the transition on the state level from the Cuomo to the Hochul administration is also a hopeful sign for the Adirondack Park. The council praised the New York State Legislature for actions that include proposing a $400 million environmental protection fund. Local government leaders were praised for work to deal with septic systems and hiker overcrowding. 
But Adirondack Park Local Government Review Board Executive Director Gerald Delaney says he doesn't take the report seriously. I think amongst local government, that is the general assessment. It really is. I mean, we know what our communities need. Personally, I think the state of the park is sort of a dinosaur that harkens back to the way things used to be done. The fiction adds friction. Local government thumbs down in the state of the park is creating friction. The segment notes an op-ed in the Albany Times Union, quote, by a local government leader inaccurately accused the Adirondack Council of reneging on a promise to support a new network of road-like snowmobile trails connecting Adirondack communities, unquote. The op-ed writer was Town of Indian Lake Supervisor Brian Wells. I'm probably one of the few supervisors still in office that was at one of these meetings. I was there. I know what was said. Wells says that one segment has compromised the integrity of the entire report. And they're trying to say that the towns were mad at DEC. No. DEC negotiated in good faith, and I think DEC had a good plan. We thought we were all in agreement. Um, We thought it was going to be a benefit to the park. Didn't work out that way. Delaney, with the Adirondack Park Local Government Review Board, also disparaged that section of the State of the Park report. Those five towns banded together with Brian Wells, and they told their story as truthfully and factually as they could. So nobody could come back and tell them they were being dishonest or misrepresenting the truth. And to then say that it is fiction is very disheartening. The Adirondack Council's John Sheehan responds by saying their position has been clear and on the record throughout and is reflected in the park report. We were very much trying to get the state to halt what it was trying to do and to redesign the trail system to be more in compliance with state law. And while we were continuing to express that, they uh, moved ahead with local government on a plan that uh, began construction and ultimately ended up in uh, the Protect the Adirondacks group's lawsuit being brought. We were watching the case for a while, but then began to participate later on because we felt that there was a chance Protect would not be successful. So we filed a friend of the court brief to make sure that they were. So I think our position on this has been extremely consistent. A link to the report is at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustino. The federal government provides benefits to anyone who got sick after they lived or worked near the site of the 9-11 attacks. Many first responders are aware of these benefits. WSHU's Desiree DiOrio reports there could still be survivors of 9-11 who are eligible, some who were just kids 20 years ago. 
2020 was a pivotal year for Dana Nelson. The 34-year-old teacher gave birth to her son in January, just as the coronavirus pandemic unfolded. And then this past December of 2020, I was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. That's a rare form of the disease that can be aggressive and difficult to treat. I have no genetic abnormalities that would lead to this. I really feel in my heart pretty strongly that my exposure to those environmental, you know, pollution things going on after September 11th have to do with that diagnosis. On September 11th, 2001, Dana Nelson was a 14-year-old freshman at Stuyvesant High School, blocks away from the World Trade Center. The school closed right after the attacks, but reopened in October as Ground Zero still smoldered. We could smell it. We could see the smoke. I remember just constantly seeing street cleaning vehicles because of this smoky sludge that was accumulating everywhere. Police, firefighters, and other first responders worked around the clock to clear debris from the hot pile of rubble. Nelson can remember the first time she thought it might not be safe to be inside the school. They had people in our school testing the air quality, and those people were in protective gear. So we're just going about our business, going to our classes, and there was somebody in, I remember, thinking that it looked like a spacesuit. Nelson is one of hundreds of thousands of students, office workers, and downtown residents who could be eligible for health care through the World Trade Center Health Program and money from the Victim Compensation Fund. Attorney Michael Barish represents over 25,000 survivors of the 9-11 attacks. That includes Nelson, one of his youngest clients. 90% of my clients were firefighters, cops, EMTs, sanitation workers, construction workers. In the last several years, it's been about 50-50 between responders and the civilians. Barish says unions that represent cops and firefighters worked hard to get the word out about the benefits. But many civilians who lived, worked, or went to school near Ground Zero assume they don't qualify because they're not first responders. He says the key is for all survivors to register for the benefits now, even if they're healthy because you need to prove you were there. You're gonna need affidavits from other students or coworkers. And the truth is in 10 or 20 years, your witnesses may not be around when you get sick. Barish says the health program covers treatment for 68 cancers and other illnesses like asthma. And if the health program certifies an illness, then you are also entitled to compensation from the Victim Compensation Fund. The health program can use virtual medical visits to certify an illness is related to exposure at ground zero. Survivors have to show tax returns, school records, or other proof that they were in the area after the attacks. 9-11 survivor Dana Nelson is waiting for the Victim Compensation Fund to approve her cancer claim. She hopes it will provide financial security for her and her son. Being able to put some of that money away for my son for college, if God forbid something happened to me, if this disease progresses, having that cushion there for him is really important to me as well. Nelson says she wants other people like her to know these benefits exist and plan for the future. That's WSHU's Desiree DiOrio reporting for the Legislative Gazette. 
And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2137. Or just listen or podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.